Hello and welcome to the Uncapped Podcast, brought to you by Roast House Pub, one of Frederick's finest craft beer and culinary destinations, where great people come to drink amazing beer. Visit them to track their taps and menu at roasthousepub.com, or download the digital pour app to track what's on tap. This is episode 117, and I'm your host, Chris Sands. This week, I'm joined in studio by, I guess, arguably one of the most popular and celebrated new breweries Maryland's had in a while, uh, Sapwood Cellars, Um, joined by one of the founders, uh, Michael, and I apologize, I did not ask you the right way, because I've heard it pronounced several different ways, so I'll just let you say it. Sure, it's Tons Meyer. Actually, that is not... (laughs) <laughs> any of the ways I've ever heard it pronounced. <laughs> so. I, used, I used to tell uh, kids when I was in school that, you know, there's an easy sort of n- mnemonic to remember it. I admire Michael Tonsmeyer. <laughs> well, thank you so much for taking time out of uh, I'm what I can only assume is a very busy schedule of having a new baby brewery. <laughs> Luckily, I don't have any actual babies, and so I've got <laughs> I've got a little bit of time in between uh, batches. And luckily, this week we had a meter replacement for our gas meter on Monday, and so we didn't schedule anything uh, too big this week. Oh, just so in I case emailed that you. Ran over I emailed and, you at the perfect time. Yeah. <laughs> and so, I normally the the first portion of the show we talk about the history, how you get into brewing, and but you have quite a storied past <laughs> in brewing. Uh, where you were, you were very well known before you even announced the brewery, which I would assume was a big part of why so many people are very excited about Sapwood Cellars coming to be uh, a brewery. Yeah. Um, so let's just uh, actually, we were talking beforehand. You actually you went to school for theater. No, no, no. Art. I'm sorry. Oh. I I went to school for economics. Oh, economics. Yeah. Oh, okay. I, I was I was at uh, Carnegie Mellon, but uh, my senior year I was just finishing up and needed a certain number of credits. And that last semester oh, okay. I took social history of animation. I took racquetball, <laughs> and I took um, beer brewing appreciation. And okay. uh, I'd been interested in home brewing for a while before that. Interested in good beer, but that was sort of the the spark that um, I guess sent me down this road. So did how um. You started there, and did you start home brewing right then? Yeah, and so that that was part of the class. Was um, so I, Pennsylvania. I think they probably still have some weird beer laws. They're they loosening do. up a little bit, but the deal was you could only buy beer pretty much by the case unless it was takeout from a bar. And so the the class of student taught. It was just uh, one night a week, and there were two instructors and twenty two students. So every week they'd buy two cases of beer. Everyone gets one of each beer. For the midterm, we did uh, brown ale, and for the uh, final was uh, Brewer's Choice. And my friend Nicole and I brewed uh, those two beers together and had a blast. And uh, when I moved back home to Massachusetts after I graduated, I started brewing with a a friend of mine who'd gotten me into good beer and started uh, the blog, The Mad Fermentationist, after I moved down here a couple months later and just kept sort of, you know, doing beer as a a side hustle uh, while I worked for the federal government. Is it, so I mean, I assume that's what brought you to uh, the D.C. area from Massachusetts? Yeah, I, I worked for the Bureau of Labor Statistics for about 11 years uh, up until this past July when I uh, quit to uh, start the brewery. So had how long um, have you wanted to start a brewery? Was that a ambition pretty early on it, after starting the Mad Fermentis and really delving into uh, craft beer? I, I was always um, not sure I wanted to be in the industry. I, I pretty early on um, 
you know, everyone catches that bug and immediately the first thought is, hey, I'm looking for a job. The economy's not doing so hot. Maybe I could go work for a brewery. And I started cold calling places. I interviewed for a few places. Um, made a, you know, I was like a finalist for assistant brewer at John Harvard's, if you know them. They're like a brew pub chain that I think may be out of business by now. Yeah, I'm not familiar with them. Yeah, they were sort of New England. Um, and uh, then when I moved down here, a friend of mine was brewing for Wild Goose, which is the facility that Flying Dog's yeah. now in. Um, and I interviewed for a cellarman job there and was offered it. And I think it was, I don't know, $11 an hour with five vacation days a year. And maybe I was going to be working like you know, over the overnight shift or something. And honestly, that was great because I said, you know, that's that's not what I want to do. I, I don't want to, you know, make crackers at a cracker factory. Um, I can keep working this government job that gives me free time to write and brew what I'm interested in brewing. Um, and then that sort of catapulted me into eventually um, writing the American Sour Beers book to consulting for um, sort of most notably modern times out in San Diego. But a whole bunch of breweries, uh, Commonwealth Brewing down Virginia Beach, and a whole bunch of other places that were sort of behind the scenes. Um, and that sort of got my feet under me in the industry a little bit. Um, but honestly, up until maybe two years ago, I really wasn't planning on opening a brewery. You know, it was certainly a, an idea in the back of my head, but um, I got to know my partner, uh, Scott Janish, who, a uh, pretty similar path to me, he's from South Dakota, he moved here to work for uh, a I forget, it was a congressman or a senator, was in the lobbying industry, lobbying for financial regulations. And I think I'd probably had one too many homebrews at my friend's house. <laughs> I said to Scott, hey, did you, if you ever want to start maybe a brewery, that would be a lot of fun. And he said, you know, actually, I've been thinking about it a lot. I've been, I, I, you know, toured a bunch of places. I was in lease negotiations. And eventually I just went, you know, it's not a one-man operation. I would need someone to go into business with. Yeah, that sounds great. <laughs> um, and so from there, you know, it's just, it was a year and a half of, um, you know, working on um, all the sort of red tape and government regulations and finding a space yeah. and all that. But um, it's just sort of a, a, a nonstop uh, rolling since that, uh, that, that talk in July, two and a half years ago. It's actually, though, a pretty fast timeline from what I hear from a lot of other people. So a lot of things must have went right yeah. for you during that. Yeah, well, the, sort of the biggest advantage we had is we um, stumbled into a place that had almost opened as a brewery. Um, they'd built out the bar, they'd built out um, the lights, they'd installed a concrete pad, and then they had sort of um, not made it right at the finish line. Um, they had beer in kegs in the walk-in, and uh, we got lucky enough to, to get that space and um, oh, we're okay. in a position to pick it up. And, and still, it was uh, that was last December and we didn't open until the end of this September. So um, still took a while, but it was a yeah. lot quicker than just getting an empty shell of a warehouse and doing everything. So the, um, so the current General Assembly just went into session. So it's a good time to um, – I, I, I plan to not beat this to death this <laughs> year again. Um did any of the all that um, we'll just call it the circus sure. that was going on? Did that give you pause, or did your business model not really? Was it such that it, you you weren't worried about what was going on? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of those laws uh, are more an uh, influence for places that are a little bit bigger than us. Um, you know, the the current cap of about two thousand barrels in tasting room, or three thousand if you sell to a distributor and buy it back is well above what we'll be producing for at least a few years. It's funny. Um, it sounds like it's not that much, 
but it it's, it's a lot a, of beer. It's a whole lot of beer. <laughs> um, I think so far the the last three months of the year we brewed about two hundred barrels, I believe, um, sort of since since we started brewing, and actually so the last like four months of the year. And so you know at that pace we're we're sort of in maybe the six to eight hundred barrels a year kind of range. Um, and so it's it's not a crazy amount uh, more beer than that, but brewing twice what we are now is still a lot of beer. Yeah. Um, well, I'm I'm glad it didn't give you pause yeah. and put you off further because I I this is I I think this is only the second beer I've had of yours. I had some at the um when you were at the Maryland Craft Beer Festival here in Frederick. Yep. Um, and then the only time I got to stop in at the brewery, I was driving around all over the place, dropping off magazines. Yep. And as much as I wanted <laughs> to try some beer, I had like five stops afterwards, and I didn't feel like that was responsible. Of yeah. Me. yeah. Um, but this is phenomenal. Thank you. Um, you you want to tell us a little bit about this, and then we'll dive back into you and the sure. your history. Um, so Scott and I both have been fans of sort of the hazy New England IPA for a while now. Um, I brewed my first one about four years ago. I tried to call it Northeast IPA because Tired Hands and Other Half were still going, and I, I thought that was a more appropriate name than New England, even though I'm from New England. Um, and so when we opened up, we, um, that's sort of the, the direction we went. Um, I think they're, they're a great thing for small local craft brewers because they're so good fresh and they don't age well that it's not a style that a big brewery can beat you on price. Yeah. You know, it's, um, and it's, it's great that more and more places are doing it. Um, but we sort of have a little bit of a unique take on it. I think it's, um, we tend to be a little bit more bitter. We're not going for just that straight, super sweet juice. Um, we want some juicy notes, but we also want some, I mean, it's an IPA, it's hop centric. And part yeah. of that is some bitterness. Um, and so one of our first batches from sort of our initial lineup was rings of light. It was a 4.8% citra dry hopped pale ale. Um, we were super fond of it. It sold pretty well. Um, and so we decided that in addition to brewing a second batch of it a couple of uh, weeks ago, we would brew sort of a double batch. And so we're calling this uh, concentric rings. We just kegged it yesterday. Um, essentially, it's the same recipe as rings of light, uh, pale malt, uh, golden naked oats, which are sort of like a oat version of a crystal malt. They have a little nuttiness. Um, they're one of the best malts just to sort of eat out of hand. They're delicious. Um, a little bit of chit malt, which is a under-modified German malt that's got the right kinds of proteins for like great head retention and body and those sorts of things. Um, and uh, then uh, a whole lot of citra dry hop. Um, we use uh, yeast from uh, RVA, which is a little lab down in uh, Virginia that we're really fond of. Gives just sort of a very light um, vanilla kind of note to it that I think goes really well with those brighter, fruitier, citrus, melon kind of things you get from citra. Um, as a small business, we're also sort of price conscious. Citra is expensive. Um, we don't use it in the kettle. On the hot side, we use um, relatively inexpensive hops okay. because a lot of the um, really sort of delicate oils will get blown off. And so the fact that this is loaded with like Columbus and Centennial for a third of the price of, of Citra for us is is a worthwhile trade-off. Yeah. Um, I think it also sort of um, cuts through that juiciness again a little bit. It has just a little bit of sort of a more herbal thing underneath it. Um, yeah, and we, um, we're pretty much just, uh, you know, we tap this in the, the, the tasting room. Um, it'll still be available by the time this is, this is aired uh, next week, and, but that's probably about it. Most of our doubles last about two weeks. Yeah, I was going to say, from, from observing from afar, it seems like uh, things don't last all that long on your, on your Yeah, tap. I mean, it, it depends on the beer. I mean, it's, it's obviously um, uh, IPAs, and particularly double IPAs, yeah. really are, are driving – 
the folks who go to tasting rooms. Um, and, you know, as, as much as I love our uh, slightly hoppy Hefeweizen or our Scottish-style stout or our Berliner Weiss, they hang around for a lot longer than a, than a new double IPA. The, I think it was Ben Little who, who was trying to coin the term um, Mid-Atlantic IPA for like this way of making a new england slash yeah. hazy ipa where it's a juicy ipa but with the added bitterness yeah because there seems to be more breweries in this area that have adapted that to beat but adding the bitterness of the ipa yeah. back into yeah I, I it's it's been great to to talk to the folks we did a collab at black flag and to talk to you know a bunch of the other you know we were talking about old mother we were talking about I, we weren't talking about but i'm a big fan of kushwa as well i mean there's a lot of great uh ipas being brewed in this this you know general you know 50 mile radius of uh maryland yeah kush was another brewery that had this down pat right away yeah, yeah. um and that's what i I mean, obviously, your history in brewing is probably what greatly held it. But so many times, um, new breweries, you you get that hop burn in these, even though they're super juicy. Yeah. Or there's there's still some offers, but like this is definitely a, yeah a perfect example. I would say we we I'm sure just being both home brewers who who dabbled with commercial breweries, but neither of us was a full time head brewer anywhere. Um, I don't think we do things in the most efficient way, but we do I mean, everything we do is to make great beer. And so almost all our beers go into a bright tank. A lot of breweries unitank. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with unitank conceptually. We've played with it a little bit. But when you start pushing these higher hop rates, it's very hard to get really clean beer without that hop burn, that sort of tingle in your throat. Yeah. Um, because it's some of those hops are gonna get sucked in along with the the beer and it's going to be in the keg or it's going to be in the can, and, and that's something that we're doing our best to avoid if we can. So how, um, how did, what led you to sour beers? Um, so I, I started brewing sour beer in 2006. I, um, I'd always heard and, and read that, you know, you never want to make a sour beer within five miles of your clean beer because that, you know, that Britannomyces, that lactobacillus, that Pediococcus is going to crawl out of one fermenter and into another. And so I thought um, I was unemployed. I'd been laid off. I was uh, doing. I was working for a, a company that was giving loans. You know, no income, no asset verification. Um, you know, high interest rates uh, didn't didn't work out well for the American economy. <laughs> um, but they laid Not me at off. All. <laughs> yeah, they laid me off, and um, I I'd been offered the government job, but I decided since I'd been job hunting for three months or four months or whatever it was, I'd take a month or two off. I was living at my parents' house at that point. And um, during that time, um, I brewed a couple of sour beers and figured I would leave them at my parents' house. I enjoyed sour beer. Sour beer is um, also one of the more expensive beers. Um, it's not necessarily that much more expensive to brew. You're really just paying for the time and the risk and all those things yeah. that a brewer has to go through. Averaging so, out the loss of the yeah. bad barrels yeah, and, that And just out. sort of the maintenance. And we've got a couple leaky barrels at the brewery right now. It's just that it, they can be a pain to deal yeah. with. So I brewed a couple, and um, I just got hooked. I just I love sour beers. Um, I love the flavors. I love the uniqueness of them. I mean, as as much as I love concentric rings, it, it tastes like citra. There's really nothing like if if you buy enough citra and you your process is okay, you can make a beer that tastes exactly like this. Yeah. Where with a sour beer, even if I gave you my recipe and my process, and you knew where the microbes came from, and you knew where the barrels came from. There's so much more to the uniqueness of the beer because it's the blender's palate, it's the 
specific microclimate within that barrel. It's the time. It's everything. Um, and so I get much more excited for sour beers because they can be so much more unique. Um, and as delicious as the double IPA is, I'm I'm not going to go way out of my way for a new mosaic IPA because I'm sure it'll be good, but is it going to be that much more different or better yeah. than any other mosaic heavy IPA I've had before? You know what it tastes like. Yeah, you, you, exactly. You, don't, you can imagine with, what it's going to be. With, with, within some yeah. within some range. Um, and so with sour beers, I, I think it's something, um, it, it just shows off a whole different palette for brewing. It, it They're food friendly in a different way. They're um, you're just bringing acidity in rather than bitterness is sort of the balancing flavor is, is really fun. Um, they showcase fruit, which we've got a lot of in the Mid-Atlantic, peaches and cherries and all those sorts of things. Um, we've been working with local wineries. We've been you know, getting cool barrels. We've been getting crushed out Chardonnay grapes. We've been dealing with dried fruit. We're going to do a lot of fruit this summer. Um, I, I think a lot of the new hop varieties play well with acid. So many of these new hop varieties are citrusy or tropical. And naturally, those flavors go with acid just as well or better than with bitterness. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it's just, I mean, it's something I've, I've been hooked on for a long time and um, naturally seemed like it needed to be part of the, the brewery. Um, you know, we're, we're excited. We've got 22 oak barrels filled and three more waiting to be filled. Um, we're on our way to maybe 75 or 80 barrels, hopefully by the end of 2019. Um, hoping to start doing some releases. We've got uh, our first batch of um, Saison went to Sauvignon Blanc barrels with um, a bunch of different microbes. And so hopefully sometime this spring that'll be out. But uh, yeah, Mar Maryland's got a lot of kettle sours and I'm, I, I have nothing against kettle sours. I'm certainly not going to say we'll never do a kettle sour. Um, but I, I think that that's just sort of one small corner of yeah. what sour beer is. Um, and there aren't that many places in Maryland that do barrel aged sour beers. There's, there's quite a few that maybe have a couple of barrels that they play with, but very few that um, it's a large part of their, their program. Um, I'm super excited for the the Elder Pine guys. They've got a pretty decent sized uh, barrel program going already, and I'm sure there'll be uh, others joining as well. Well, and there's um, uh, whatever Jailbreak's calling their new That's venture. Right. I can't remember. It was something, then they changed it, and now Evil Twins involved. And yeah, I just came. I just heard that, but I wasn't sure what. Yeah, they've made some sneak peek posts and um, cool. Yeah, one one of our good friends uh, brews for them, and okay. so we're we're big fans of them. And I think they probably actually sold us some Citra to put into this beer because oh, cool. they had a little extra. Um, that, that's we we talk about that all the time. That that's one of the most amazing and great things about the craft beer industry is how much everyone's willing to help each other. Yeah, no, it's it's been terrific, and um, it's amazing how many other brewers are into our tasting room once a week or once a month to. You know, talk beer, try, try the beer, give us advice. You know, ask for advice. It's um, it's it's been a very welcoming community so far, and I think part of that is Maryland is not um as saturated with breweries as some other parts of the country are. It doesn't have to be cutthroat. Yeah, and I think it's also it's a different feel when a lot of us are so focused on the tasting room that we're not fighting over that same tap handle somewhere else. There are. I mean, I'd, I'd rather focus on the tasting room and, and have complete control over the product yeah. rather than sending it out into the and world. Worrying about it going through a dirty line or sitting around too long. Or... Yeah, and we, we try to do some, some more unique or weirder you know, concept beers, and it's great to have a talented staff who can explain those beers, um, who can you know, give somebody a taste of something and, and walk them through why we did something or what the goal was. And it's, it's amazing how that changes someone's perception of what they're drinking. So you had mentioned um, in the beginning of that part 
Actually, no. First, I, before I ask that question, sure. we're going to take a quick break to thank Roast House Pub for their continued support of the Uncapped podcast. Uh, and then I have a couple questions to follow up on sour beers right after that. A huge thank you to our presenting sponsor, Roast House Pub, which is located at 5700 Urbana Pike in Frederick, Maryland. If you have listened to this podcast before, you have definitely heard me go on and on about the beer dinners that Chef Nico creates. Simply put, they are amazing. But Roast House Pub has much more to offer. Their friendly staff is knowledgeable about beer and will help you choose from among the 20 beers they have on tap. In addition to the awesome beer selection, the food is always amazing. Make sure to follow them on Facebook, and check their website at www.roasthousepub.com to keep up to date on their constant stream of events. All right, so you had said um, in your reading, mm -hmm. talking about how the people want to make sure that the spontaneous fermentation uh, beers were kept completely separate from um, regular fermentation sure where do you fall on that spectrum because i that's an interesting difference i've found between brewers where there are still ones that are completely paranoid about that one completely separate yeah. facilities like if they would rather have an air gap even than just a wall in place yeah. and then there's places like i was at uh, triple crossing mm -hmm. talking to him and theirs are right next to each other. He said that they have, as long as you follow the procedures they have in place, there's nothing to worry about. Yeah, that's that's where we fall too. Okay. Um, it, I mean, you're, the sanitation cleaning regimen is intended to kill all these wild yeast and bacteria. And honestly, I think some breweries aren't maybe paranoid enough about um, Saccharomyces diastaticus, which caused Oscar Blues a bunch of trouble and they sued White Labs over. Oh, I remember, yeah, I remember. That was like what two one or two years yeah, ago? yeah but that's that's the same stuff as french saison or sactois or wbo6 the dried hefeweizen yeast and so that's as big or bigger of a concern and plenty of breweries will use those in their same tanks that then they do an ipa and afterwards so um, we have a dedicated fermenter for the sour beers um, so we've done a couple of saisons a, a natural fermented no boil berliner weiss um, we just did a triple with um Supreme Court cidery in that in that tank, um, but then otherwise we rely on the same things that most breweries do, um, you know, chemicals, and then we do a lot of um, heat uh, pasteurization. So we'll sort of at critical points we'll hook up the lines to our on-demand hot water heater and run 180 degree water through them for Just 25 minutes. Even if it's down deep in something, that kills it. Okay. Yeah, I, th there seems to be like there's no uh, middle ground on the philosophies that brewers yeah. have. It's I think, what, one extreme or the other. Like they're just they're yeah worried about it, but not worried about it. Like they they trust their procedures yeah. or the people who they they would rather just have a separate brewery take it. Oh, like, it, it certainly would would be ideal to you know, and, and we'll certainly look down the road if, for example, another um, you know unit in our our uh, our shopping, wherever it is, shopping center, flex space, goes out, hey, I would love to move all the sour barrels and have a dedicated bottling line in another place and then be able to just, you know, forklift barrels over there. Yeah. That's sort of what Jailbreak is doing is my yeah. understanding. The, yeah, it's in, uh, com no, it's, it's, oh, it's not it's, even it's a separate, even further. It, yeah, it's a completely separate building. Like yeah. you walk outside, walk exactly. a Exactly, but it's, but it's in the same sort of It's separated zone. though. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah in exactly. The same, it's in the same center, but yeah. in a separate building of that Exactly, center. yeah. Um, but yeah, honestly, as, as long as your procedures are good, um, I, the other edge for us and one of the reasons we're sort of going about the business model the way we are is 
putting things on, dra on draft and serving it ourselves mean the beer stays cold, it's served quickly, we don't have to worry about cans going out there into the world, sitting warm for a month, um, and you know, then manifesting those problems a lot more. Um, and so hopefully as we expand and as we get into packaging, we can then you know, tighten, up, tighten up the ship, figure out what works, what doesn't, what the, what the pressure points are. So you had mentioned you wrote this book, um, which I often hear people talk about how, um, they, like when they talk about sapwood and they know yeah. it's going to be good, they, they, it's often with the phrase, he literally wrote the book on <laughs> sour beers. I had full intention on reading some of this uh, <laughs> before talking to you. Um, as with my intentions of reading most books, I horribly failed at that. Don't you, mo don't most radio interviews they have like an intern read it and then they tell the host like you you don't have an intern or something. I need like to that? find an intern. <laughs> Maybe I can just make, Graham's my new Graham can be the producer slash intern. No, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I did read enough of it to at least have a couple questions. Sure. Uh, one, I didn't realize there were so many uh, methods for making sour beer. Yeah. Um, so I, I, that is one thing has led me to uh, look forward to actually reading this. <laughs> but so th that just made me think: which, is there a method you prefer then? Cause yeah, it, so I, I, there, there's so it's what, probably answered in this if I what, actually read it. But <laughs> I, I wrote that about five years ago now, and so I was just a homebrewer. But so in the homebrew methods sort of set up, there's a suggestion on the way I do things. Um, I won't say that there's a, a preferred method necessarily. We we've gone about sort of different timings on things, but my general approach is not to have a single house culture. There are some breweries that have the same microbe mother culture that they add to every single beer. Okay. Um, and for me, I would rather have as much variety as I can. You know, it's it's sort of the idea of not putting all your eggs in one basket. I would rather have you know 50 throws at the dartboard so that if I miss five of them. That's not a big deal. I can dump five barrels rather than having one throw for all the money where you might end up with all the barrels. And even if they're all good, but they all taste the same or have the same level of acidity, then you don't have options for blending. You don't, you can't take, oh, this one's a little too sour. This one's not sour enough. Um, and I think that's a lot of the magic of like the Lambic breweries in Belgium is that they're not, they don't have a brew day and say, well, today we're brewing Creek. They say, okay, we're going to brew this season. We're going to fill 500 oak barrels. And um, we're going to taste them a, a year and decide which ones need fruit, which ones need to be dumped, which ones need to be saved for blending next year, which ones should be blended with older beer this year, um, and go from there, um, rather than saying, this is where this beer is heading exactly. Um, I, I, I'm not a prognosticator. I can't tell you exactly how each barrel is going to turn out. Um, but you know, the more things we get into barrels, the more different microbes we can get from yeast labs, from spontaneous sources, from uh, bottle dregs from other breweries, from anywhere we can get them, um, the more chance we'll have of finding fun things, creating unique flavors, um, and creating a whole bunch of beers out of a smaller set. Do you find that do um, a lot of commercial brewers use this book as a reference? Yeah, definitely. Um, it's, I mean, that's Brewers Publications, the, the publisher who's a wing of the American Homebrewers Association, the Brewers Association, really intends those to be aimed at professional brewers. Um, I got a little... Not people who like me who have no idea what and, they're... And not at homebrewers. <laughs> um, they, they really want that, you know, they feel that they're really sort of they're the highest level organization yeah. is a professional brewing organization. And um, to me, I always feel like professional brewers have more, um, more sources 
uh, potentially than home brewers do. They can call other brewers yeah. in a way that maybe a home brewer would have a harder time. Um, but yeah, I've gotten, I've signed a lot of commercial copies and uh, I sent them to everyone who, um, who helped me out. So at least they, I you know, got them into some good hands. Um, Vinny Chorizo from Russian River wrote the opening and um, it was amazing how open uh, people like Lauren Salazar from New Belgium and um, Ron from Jolly Pumpkin and Will from Cambridge and I mean, all those fantastic guys who had been and gals who'd been doing sour beers since the 90s or the early 2000s. Um, I'm looking forward to doing a new edition in probably four or five more years. Um, now that there are just so many places that are doing fantastic stuff and new ideas and pushing the boundaries and, and all that. So you had... Um you had mentioned doing consulting with breweries. Mm -hmm. I, I imagine that was with helping with sour beer programs. Yeah, mostly, or? although not entirely. I mean, it's I've I've been brewing sort of all sorts of stuff for years, and so um, I I helped with recipe development for some places that were um, starting out, and I start I helped with starting sour programs for people who already had breweries and just wanted to sort of have a you know a great sour program from day one when they were day you know three hundred sixty five or whatever. It's kind of interesting that without having ever been a professional brewer that you still had garnered enough respect to for breweries, professional brewers to hire you as a consultant to help them. Yeah, no, and I, a lot of them, it's, there are sort of different pieces to any brewery. And, I, you know, they weren't asking me how to, uh, how to fill a barrel. You know, a lot of them yeah. had clean barrel programs. They just wanted to know what microbes, what sort of base beers – Hey, that had an idea for a beer. You know, could I make a recipe for it? Those sorts of things. And I get did, did that. Was that all born from the popularity of the Mad Fermentist? Or um, but between the blog, well, I think just having the book really okay. led some some credibility. And the book also, I mean, it, it writing a book about brewing does not make a huge amount of money, but it got me invited to uh, talk about brewing in Brazil and Norway and New Zealand and. A whole bunch of towns all across the United States, and it um, you know gets me invites to podcasts and <laughs> all sorts of other things. Um, well, so we're, it, we're a pretty low bar, yeah. so I, I I wouldn't tout this one too much. <laughs> yeah, but it's it's certainly it, it's I mean a, a book is sort of I looked at it almost as um, I didn't go to grad school, sort of as my graduate degree. It it really you know I spent three or four years you know researching, writing, having it edited, um, all that really. Um, makes you have to understand things in a very different way when you have to explain it to someone versus just understanding it enough to know how to make a beer. Yeah, and there's a, a, a certain prestige of saying I wrote a book. Yeah. Um, it's one of those things, like, in my head, I think it would be cool if I wrote a book someday, even though I don't have the um, ability or talent to write a book at all. Uh, I still think that would be really cool if I ever did. Yeah. It would probably be, like, a picture book with stick figure sketches, but... <laughs> If I could just find someone to publish it, then yeah, no, I, I started writing without a publisher. My plan was to to self publish. Uh, my partner Scott's uh, working on a book on sort of the science behind IPAs, and um, he's had a little interest from publishers, but I think he's just gonna do it himself so he can write exactly what he wants and yeah. not have to deal with anything else. And I think at this point he's just happy to be almost done with it because it's been it's a little hard to find time to write a book when you're trying to brew. Uh, it's just just the two of us producing beer at this point. We haven't hired anyone, so. It's a lot of six and seven day weeks, twelve hours a day, that kind of thing. Um, so, where did the name Sapwood come from? Sure, um, we uh, we are not creative people. We are not <laughs> like Scott and I both would name our beers as home brewers. Like this is Citra Pale Ale, this is Berliner Weiss Number Four, um, and so we just came up with a whole bunch of names or brainstorming. Um, 
So Sapwood sort of hit hit for a couple of reasons. Um, so Sapwood itself is um, the sort of the new growth under the bark. It's the wood that um, is responsible for as the xylem. It's transferring the the liquid. Um, the name itself uh, just sort of sounds like sap to me. Sounds like fresh, um, bright green for the hoppy beers. And wood sounds like barrels wood you know that we're aging the sour beers in. Sort of same idea with the logo. We've got a hop on one side for the sap, for the hop, for the IPA, and acorn for oak trees, for wood, for the barrels on the other side. Um, we like cellars uh, just because we're going to have a lot of barrels, and it just gave it hopefully a little bit of a, a classier vibe. Um, we still get a couple calls every once in a while thinking we're a winery. Um, but it was not just for um, you know the guys waking up at 6 in the morning to wait in line for cans. When we start doing cans, we'll be happy to take their their yeah. uh, excitement and and uh, give them some beer for it. But we also want to be a place that folks in the community who live in Columbia um, are excited to you know come in and hang out in our tasting room and um, have a range of beers. You know, really get to try a whole bunch of um, things from you know a three point six Berliner Weiss to a four point two Hefeweizen. You know, make make a beer that's accessible and fun and delicious. Um, in addition to stuff that people get excited about. So okay, <clears throat> I almost forgot to ask this. You, I, I've seen um, a few places now uh, talk about releasing no brew Berliner Weisses. I have no idea what that is. Um, yeah, and so I we, feel I, I feel like I should. Um, so can you fix that for me? Sure. Um, so uh, Berliner Weisses is, is a style that there's. I mean, sort of like in the book, there's a there's fifty different ways to make it. Um, the way I make it is, is I think, a somewhat authentic way to make it. Uh, I'm not, uh, you know, trying to. There, there, play, there are people, um, uh, Patton Brewing, Brewing is opening up, and one of their uh, founders, Matt Humbard, a good friend of mine, he is a Ph.D. microbiologist. He uh, uh, does the Milk the Funk podcast. Yeah. And he's been, like, you know, talking to people and getting, like, the authentic uh, strain of Britannomyces that was in some Berliner Weiss from the seventies that someone resurrected. I'm, I, my interest is always in brewing. Like, you just recently over there, right? Uh, or at least in Europe or yeah, something. I, I, I can't keep track of it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so, um, so the idea is one, one way to approach Berliner Weiss is, um, to just bring the, to do the mash as you normally would collect the wort. Um, and then we just brought it up to about 165 degrees Fahrenheit. That's enough to denature the enzymes. It's enough to, um, kill any, of the wild yeast or wild bacteria that was from the grain, and then we cool it down. Um, and that's really fun because Berliner Weiss is a super boring style on its own. And particularly, um, you know, if you're not adding fruit or dry hops or spices, it's just acid and a little bit of wheat. And no boil, um, it has this raw flavor to it. It tastes like um, pizza dough or it has this fresh, weedy sort of flavor to it. Um, and so that's all we do. We heat it up to 165, we cool it to 70, and we pitched um, a blend of lactobacillus from Omega Labs, uh, lactobacillus brevis, and lactobacillus plantarum. Uh, we use uh, USO5, which is just a dry, clean American ale yeast. Um, I don't think Berliner Weiss should taste like a Hefeweizen. That's a different wheat beer. Um, and then we pitched a blend of Britannomyces um, from the yeast bay that's supposed to have sort of a lemony, kind of funky kind of flavor to it. Um, it's been a lot of fun. Most of our beers just get, um, we pump carbonation into them and we keep them cold and that's sort of the end of the story until they're gone. For the Berliner Weiss, we add sugar, like you were bottle conditioning, um, and we've left it warm. And so now for the last three months in the keg, it's slowly getting a little bit more interesting, a little bit more lemony, a little bit more mineral, 
Um, it's sour, but it's not really sharp acid. Mm -hmm. It's um, pH is about three three. Although I should probably check it again now that it's had time to sit. It just makes a much more interesting beer that um, you can drink without a syrup, without uh, you know. As I was uh, going to ask, do you serve? Do you have, have syrups available, or do we, you just serve it? normal we just serve it normal um we are just about to apply finally for our food license okay. which i think will allow that although it's sort of a gray area yeah. and it's it's so weird that brewing you can sort of add anything you want almost within legal reason to the beer itself before you serve it but as soon as you start making cocktails with it then it sort of falls under different rules and regulations and those sorts of things um but we we really intended to be drank as um, just sort of like a light, bright, slightly funky, slightly fruity, tart wheat beer. Yeah, you you had mentioned Kushwa earlier. Um, the, uh, one of my favorite names of a beer is their Berliner Weiss, and they, they call it the People's Champagne. I don't like, yeah, I just love that name. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's it's sort of historical too. You know, it used to be called the Champagne of the North. Or, okay. Um, because it's yeah light bright super high carbonation um, it's just a, it's a fun beer to drink and um, we're doing sort of a very similar base but then with apricots and then dry hop just to get get something for the people who want a little bit more oomph in the the flavor department so this um, you need the finish that uh, that Dibbux you brought would you described it as an experimental homebrew yeah so that I, I brewed this um, I'll let you. Yeah, here I'll. Yeah, that looks like it. It'll need to be poured uh, lightly, or does it not matter if the sediment gets in with that? Or no, it, it shouldn't matter. Okay. I mean, it's sort of a. That smells delicious. Yeah, so we've got a whole bunch more of this aging at the brewery. Um, but the idea was to sort of treat cherries as you might for an IPA. So I used dried sour cherries early in the fermentation, sort of like you would for kettle hops to add that sort of saturated, jammy, um, full fruit flavor. And then um, at the end, uh, for the last two months, it was aged on um, sour cherries from the tree in my backyard. My wife's sour cherry tree, I stole some so she couldn't make <laughs> pies with them. And then some dark sweet ones from the farmer's market. Um, That's really good. Yeah, just like that bright cherry yeah. flavor. It's a little bit funky, but it's not. I mean, I think sour beer should be delicious. I don't think it should be a challenge that you have yeah. to sort of choke down and kind of get over. Yeah, there's no choking of this. It's yeah. a, it is very uh, nice, and the cherries are definitely there. Yeah, and it's not a crazy amount of cherries and because the base beer already has some of those notes from the microbes. Um, so we've got... Five oak barrels going, um, two bourbon barrels, three Pinot Noir barrels. Two of them have dried sour cherries in them. And then we'll sort of choose and blend. Um, they all have different microbes from uh, Y yeast and East Coast yeast and some bottle dregs. Um, and we'll see, hopefully, sort of by June when sour cherries are back in season, we'll uh, blend it into a tote all together, whatever we, barrels we want, add the fruit, give it two months, and then hopefully uh, release it sometime early next fall. So... Uh, the Duchess, an amazing, one of the best amazing beers or disgusting? What's your opinion of it? It's too much vinegar for okay. me. Okay. Cool. I'm, it's I'm, disgusting. <laughs> no, I'm, I, I'm, I'm very sensitive to that, the ethyl acetate, the nail polish remover. Yeah, one, one of the biggest fights my wife and I have is that I can't stand the smell of nail polish or nail polish remover. And so she knows that, like, if I'm going to be out of town or something like that, she'll, she'll paint her nails. And, <laughs> 
because I'll I've, I've come in four or five hours after she's done. And I'm like, what's that? <laughs> I just and I should probably try it again now that I I can appreciate and I actually enjoy sour beers. I'll probably still hate it, um, but early on in starting to get into craft beer yeah. drink that was one of those beers told to me is like this is one of the best beers the, the paragon of the yeah. style yeah and i tried it and i like i took a sip and it was a drain pour for me <laughs> so yeah and so we're, there there are some brewers who believe that some amount of oxygen is good so oxygen uh, allows for acetic acid production ethanol plus oxygen goes to acetic and that can be turned into ethyl acetate which is the nail polishy sort of aroma um, we do everything we can to limit the amount of oxygen um, we purge the barrels with CO2, we top them up, we're trying to keep them as cold as possible, um, sort of doing everything we can to avoid that vinegar flavor from having any role in our beers. Um, That's got to be hard to keep oxygen out of a porous yeah. container though, right? Yeah, is- so so barrels um, do, naturally let in some amount of oxygen, so there's no way to keep it to zero, um, but you just have to be really concerned. Um, so barrels naturally, the, the angel shares, distillers call yeah. that evaporation. What happens is the level in the barrel drops a little bit with that evaporation. That wood at the top, just like the the floorboards in your house in the wintertime, will start pulling apart because they're drying. And then that lets sort of that cycle speeds up. Oh, there's little gaps. That means oxygen's getting in. That means um, evaporation's increasing. Now it's going to go lower. It's going to dry out more. Um, So we'll open them up every couple of months. We save a little bit of every batch to um, put back into the barrel. Exactly. Um, and it's there's no perfect way because every time you open it up to top off, you're also let potentially laying some oxygen yeah. in. Um, but it's you know we we do the best we can. Um, we we were a pretty uh, low funded brewery. We'd love to have a temperature controlled, humidity controlled barrel room. That's still on on the plans, but it's also not you know the number one thing. And we're lucky that when we opened, it's you know 62 degrees in the brewery, and it's um, you know it's it's a fine place for now. But next summer, it might get old. I see. So that with um, beer barrel aging mm-hmm. is climate control important because in that um, in talking to a lot of distilleries. They, they talk about not having climate control and finding that to be important for the aging of uh, specifically whiskey. Yeah, they, they um, want that sort of almost, they, I think they call it sort of breathing in and out, yeah. the, the temperatures, big swings. The, the problem is that they're very different products in there. Yeah. And so like if you have a bottle of bourbon, you can open it and close it and have an ounce for the next five years and you'll still have perfectly delicious bourbon. I wouldn't try that with a, with a Bourbon County stout. You know, okay, that makes it's the because the alcohol is lower, you can have microbial action, you can have oxidation. And so um, a lot of breweries that have the money um, barrel age uh, co- colder. Um, so I know founders and the, bre- the brewery um, keep have have temperature controlled storage. I think founders, a lot of their stuff is in old. I forget it's chalk mines or something like that. Um, you know, 35, 40, 50 degrees for their non sour stuff. 60, 65 is pretty classic for sour beers. Um Warm enough that the microbes can still work, but not so warm that you start getting these sort of negative um, flavors. Okay, that makes sense. If I would have thought that through, I wouldn't have asked a stupid question. <laughs> yeah, no, I've, I've talked to a couple of breweries around here that don't have barrel rooms, and they'll say, yep, we, you know, we, we start barrel aging stuff as, uh, you know, sort of in the fall, and then we try to get all out of the barrels by um, you know, May or something like that just so we don't have to have beer sitting in barrels because we've gotten weird um, – 
you know, like uh, like wood, like like real like wood board kind of flavors, uh-huh. like Home Depot lumber aisle kind of <laughs> kind of flavor. It's not a very. Uh, it's not a good one. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so we'll see. I mean, I, I sour beers are a little bit more resilient. The Brettanomyces will eat oxygen, but can also again create that that acetic acid and ethyl acetate. So where do you find um, the sweet spot in aging? Or is it really just when the beer's ready, that's that's how long you age it for? Yeah, it's it's really when the beer's ready. Our, our Honestly, our biggest problem right now is that all, all the barrels we've gotten so far are first used to us. So they're from a distillery that aged rum in them, a distillery that aged um, bourbon in them, uh, wineries, and they have a lot of wood character still for beer. Beer is considerably more delicate than a wine. You know, a 13% alcohol Cabernet can stand Overpower. up to it. A new a new barrel, but by the time even though the the wineries call them neutral at that point, they're neutral for wine but not for beer. Um, and so we've intentionally been trying to make some things that are a little bit quicker turnaround, some saisons that are already pretty dry going into the barrel, so we can maybe give them three months or six months and then get them out and then reuse that barrel just for, to try to strip out some of the the wood remaining wood taste exactly. And some of the beers that we're hoping to age longer, we filled them with hot water to allow them to sort of pull out that initial harder uh, wood flavor and, and whatever um, sort of wood-saturated spirit or wine was in the wood. Um, but we're, we're hopeful that um, as we can sort of refill these barrels, then we can do some of that blending between first-use, second-use, third-use barrels, have different sorts of beers that go into different kinds of barrels. So you don't ever really want to get any of the flavoring or... It, it would be nice Think, to have a blend. So it, everything I do on the sour side is about creating different options. So it's great to have, say, if you had six oak barrels for one batch, if two of them had a really big, fresh, oaky, winey flavor, two of them had a little of that, and two of them didn't have much. You could then choose, if I want to blend three of these together, do I want one of each? Do I want two of the really oaky okay. one and one of the medium oaky one? Um, if I'm adding fruit, do I want the fruit to sort of... Um, balance out the oak or do I want to sort of leave the oak out of the way so the fruit can shine through and that's like we've got all these spreadsheets and we've got all sorts of um, labels for the barrels that sort of say what's in them what the different microbes are what use it is what was in there before and that's not super important right now but it'll become more important as we figure out what works best for each beer hey this um, you know we've got hopefully some port barrels coming for like a nine percent Flemish red that's the kind of beer that could stand up to a big, fresh, oaky, potent wine kind of flavor. But hey, maybe the 5.5% Saison needs something that has had two or three beers through it already from a white wine, something very mild, um, so that it doesn't totally overwhelm the beer. So the um, how much of the process of sour beer production is the blending of it? And is that... Th- do you often we'll, get we'll a see. barrel? A, like, is it often that like a barrel is ex- that's what you want to drink, or is it almost always it takes several different barrels to mix together to get to a yeah. flavor that you want? Yeah, it's 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 tough. Um, often single barrels can be super delicious on their own, um, but if you want consistency, blending is is that's really where it comes in. It's it's. Amazing that a place like Cantillon Drifontine can make a consistent product through blending. The Cantillon Classic always tastes not exactly the same, but very similar, particularly when you have it relatively fresh. Um, And that's a testament to the blending skills that they can piece together 
15 or 20 or 25, I don't know what their sort of number is for a single blend, but that they can sort of piece this together to get this consistent flavor. Um, we haven't gotten to that point yet. We've, we've got stainless steel nails to pull for samples for all our barrels, but we actually haven't gotten to the point of blending. We've played around with some things. We've got um, a couple different beers that we've been trying to think about and piece together. Um, it's also a question of practicality, you know, what's sort of the smallest unit you want to blend by. You don't want to use 45 gallons from one barrel because then you've got 15 gallons you're either going to have to dump or you're going to have to find something to do with. Um, and so I, I think blending is essential, but it's also not required. Um, you can have a pretty good unblended beer, but it's more about setting up the opportunity. So we might have one particular barrel that's perfect and leave that alone, but maybe the other ones get blended in some interesting way or this one, maybe, hey, it's got a little too much acid. Well, you can dry hop it. Dry hopping raises the pH and cuts some of that acidity and covers up the sort of the fact that it's a relatively bland beer. It's um, that whole process is sort of all tied together of not just blending a particular beer, but figuring out where each component goes and then sort of before it all, figuring out what your components are going to be. So when you were homebrewing sour beers, were, were you blending them? Like it Depends. Using small barrels and then Mo Mostly carboys, the honestly. Um, I, we had a couple of barrels. Um, I've been good friends with um, Nathan Zender, the now head brewer at Right Proper for a long time. We had a couple of barrels in his basement, a couple of barrels in my basement. Um, we would sort of pull from them and do interesting infusions and make you know interesting concepts. Um, and once in a while, I'd invite a few friends over. Uh, my friend Jake, who's in DC Homebrewers with me, um, I was just over at his house a, a couple of weeks ago. He invited the homebrew club over. He had, I don't know, he's got 15 or 20 carboys of sour going, pulled samples of all of them. We all sat around blending. Hey, what about this with that? What about this mixed with this? Hey, could we add a little wine to this? Um, and then we all worked together to, to um, bottle them all. Sorry if I'm distracted. You're opening something delicious, I'm sure. It, this is pretty good, and this led to um – Something that happened to this brewery recently it was leading me to a question, but I, I don't know if what, it really what brewery? mattered. Hitchhiker Brewing in uh, Pittsburgh. Um, they it, there was an article this that week. That is a bright colored beer. Yeah, it's it's called Bottle Service. It is a mimosa smoothie sour. Um, they're they they're big on um, hazy beers yep. and kettle sours. Wow. Um, Very and, orangey. Oh, it, it tastes straight, like straight orange juice, basically, with a little bit of acidity. Um, That's, uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's as much acidity, I would say, as orange juice, but yeah. it's not like sour sour. Yeah, it's really good. So a lot of their other um, ones are, um, their kettle sours are much more what, what you expect yeah. from your typical kettle sour. Um, so my question was, when opening the brewery, um, I imagine, though, a lot of your um, decision-making was based on finding a place that was mostly finished. So or, on, honestly, I mean, it's, that was sort of, I don't know what we would have done if, if that place hadn't worked out after we found it. But our original vision was actually to be much more like um, Rare Barrel or um, Refrain, the, the blendery in um, New Jersey. The plan was to buy Wirt put it into fermenters oh, okay. or barrels and focus on like retail bottle sales. Um, but once we found that space and rather than having to spend X number of hundreds of thousands of dollars on um, building up the tasting room and we could spend that money instead on a brew house, um, that made a lot more sense and opened up the fresher hoppy stuff as a, as a much better option. Um, 
I mean, you just have to be sort of flexible with what your business model is. We didn't go into it with this. This is actually a lot bigger and a lot cooler than what we originally yeah. planned. Um, so you're more in a industrial-ish type yeah. um, area. So yeah, the, there's a lot of office space actually. We've yeah. got like you know a, a healthcare company, and that that's that probably thing. helps you though. A lot of those people get the, off from the the dredges of their nine yeah. to five to come over. The to, the, the healthcare company, a bunch of them are, are in there pretty frequently, and they told us that, and we're probably gonna name a beer uh, conference room eleven. Apparently, they have ten conference rooms, and they start referring to the tasting. Nice. <laughs> That's then it uh, just yeah. has a nice ring for a beer name, yeah. also. When, and the nice thing about Columbia is, even though we're in this sort of little industrial enclave right across the street from us, there's all these single family homes, yeah. and so it's it's a little bit different than being way out in just like a an area where you're surrounded by industrial or light light manufacturing for a couple miles around. So the what happened to Hitchhiker recently mm -hmm. is they're in well you you went to school in Pittsburgh, so you may be familiar with Mount Lebanon. Yep. So their original brewery is in Mount Lebanon, uh, within a small, uh, the city center area that still has residential all yep. right around it, and there's some local breweries that have found themselves in the same exact problem. They recently, I think maybe a day or two ago, were sued by neighbors, residents, and that they, those people are also suing the city for the disruption that zoning or yeah. whatever well that they're not enforcing the zoning because that that brewery has more they're over capacity and okay that there's fun um so uh, i guess my question is do you do you feel like it's better to be located like where you're at as opposed to these city center type places because they seem to never be welcomed by their neighbors because yeah. unfortunately there are people that go to breweries that aren't capable of acting and behaving like yeah. normal human beings. So like in this and lawsuit some, some, is listed so, as people urinating in their yard and but yeah. litter being there. And yeah, it's, it's tough. I know some, some particularly Maryland farm breweries have run into similar sorts mm -hmm. of na neighborly issues. Um, we, we went back and forth and, and it's, it's tough because there are definitely some breweries that are in beautiful, walkable downtown areas that are just packed, you know, three deep at the bar. Yeah. Um, but they're probably also paying three times what we are per square foot. And so for us, the the thought was to have this place where we could produce the beer and, hey, if we can't sell enough out of the tasting room there, and we'll see because we've, we've got 4,000 uh, 4, square feet of production space, a lot of barrels, you know, trying to run a tasting room out of the front 3,000 square feet. Um, we may not be able to sort of exceed capacity there. If if we can sell everything out of that tasting room and people are willing to come buy cans and buy bottles and that's that's our whole um, our whole inventory can go to that, great. If not, rather than trying to sell kegs to bars, which is it's it's annoying to have to fight for tap space. Um, the the margins are just not good compared to I mean if if every keg we sell to a bar is like us selling dollar fifty pours at the tasting room it's just it's hard to justify particularly when you're doing these beers with Galaxy and Nelson and sour beers with a whole bunch of fruit in them um, that we would love to open up a tasting room and and maybe with a food component some cool place where we can have a much smaller footprint because we don't need to be doing production we don't need to be industrial for two-thirds yeah. of the space that doesn't really matter where the beer is being produced um almost I, again i work for modern times california san diego every single brewery has a downtown tasting room somewhere that's like the yeah. entire business model is 
have have a brewery tasting room, but really get that cool space next to the theater and sell beer to people who aren't necessarily hardcore beer nerds who are going to go to a release or pre-buy bottles online or go to a, the the gnarly industrial area to drink a beer at three o'clock on a Tuesday. But hey, if you have that cool space next to the the fun ramen shop. Um, and Modern Times now had five or six tasting rooms or something like that all up and yeah, down. It seems the like West all Coast. the big ones over there had just have them all over the yeah. place. And that that seems like a, a a lot sweeter move to us. And I I think you can do that in Maryland. It's sort of what Duclaw was doing there for a while, where they had sort of the main production space and then sort of the brew pub restaurants where they weren't actually brewing. I at. think it depends by county, and then there's nuances. Yeah, and, it, and so we haven't gotten into a, it yeah. yet. But and and whether or not we would be able to, like for example, we might put like a little pilot system there if we if that's what was required to make sort of fun mini batches that could go on tap at both locations or something like that. What size is your brew house? Uh, Ten barrels. Um, it's a Forge Works, which is a relatively small company out of Colorado, and then we've got. Uh, two 10-barrel fermenters, a 15 for the sours that we got off of Sinistral Brewing. They had an extra one down in Manassas. And then uh, we uh, have a 20 that we will start double-batching doubles into, uh, double IPAs, just because that's where the demand is. So normally I ask everyone what is the best um, negative review they've received, but I'm betting you haven't received any negative reviews it's, yet. Honestly, what, what what kills me is is the negative reviews. Like our lowest review, I think our only two star review on on Google is just two stars, and without any without explanation. Any, you know, it it just kills you to be. You know, I, I try to respond. Well, if there's something wrong, let us know. Yeah. And then I untapped. We have a real sort of untapped is is amazingly powerful. It encourages people to try a variety of beers. Our beers are often in sort of the top trending list locally, but then it kills me to like somebody has a bro advice, gives it one star, and just says yikes. Yeah. <laughs> or, no, actually, you know what my favorite one was? Someone called our Citra Dry Hopped Berliner Weiss uh, not authentic. <laughs> what does that even mean? Yeah. I I know it's not authentic. Yeah, it's not it a surprise. A, yeah. Oh, you you got us. You know they don't they don't dry hop their Berliners with Can't Citra. Trick him. Yeah. <laughs> That's I, I've I've mentioned it before, but they. I, I made a beer with Monoxy Brewing that was a sour mango mm-hmm. IPA, um, and it was basically mango juice. and And one of the reviews left for it was that they they couldn't pick up any mango taste or smell or something along those lines. And then literally the next review was mango juice. Yeah, <laughs> we we see a lot of those. We we did a, a coffee version of our pale ale, and the first review was. Coffee overwhelms the the pale ale base. Second one was not even a hint of coffee. <laughs> it's I mean it's always I mean taste is subjective yeah. and I I I guess I I used to write reviews on beer advocate. And I felt like there used to be a little bit more of an expectation that you would have a little bit more of the beer. You'd be a little bit more thoughtful about yeah, it. You anymore. would you would try to consider the beer in the context of the style. I don't like porters, but this seems to be a particularly good porter. I can stomach it. I'm not going to give you a two just on my own hedonistic whatever scale. Um, but at the same point, again, I untapped um, has some I, a bunch of friends who rate on untapped whose palates I trust. And I tend to sort of look if one of my friends has had it. And I have a good friend who's a very harsh critic of us. Um, he's very honest with his reviews. Um, he said at one point that our beers tasted like Trillium, and he doesn't like Trillium. <laughs> um, but he just had one of our beers and gave it four and a half stars, and that was awesome to see because you know he. I think that it was just like, oh yeah, this hit one's a home good. run. Yeah, <laughs> and, 
And like I, I trust him a lot more than I do sort of some sort of average. But honestly, the average is also important for what's going to sell. And, and at a certain point, this is a different job than being a home brewer. A home brewer, yeah. you can follow your passions. You brew for your own tastes. You're running a business ultimately that needs yep. cash flow to yeah. exist. <laughs> and at the same time, I don't want to just chase reviews because I think that's the way you turn off the local drinkers. Yeah. We could obviously at this point just be brewing double IPAs and doing well, but I want those folks who are just in the neighborhood, who, folks who come in with their kids. We're having a kid's birthday party next week. Like, <laughs> I, I'm those people are more consistent, more reliable. They're not just going to go and chase the next new hot brewery that opens, yeah. like a lot of these people will, and and that's okay. I mean, it's you know, yeah, that's the people, deal. Different, yeah. yeah. And I, I particularly with a with a nice tasting room in sort of a. Um, you know, a, a place with a lot of single-family homes, you have to worry about families and kids, yeah. and and you know, making sure that the food trucks are uh, are coming there and your prices are reasonable and all that stuff. Uh, so the next question that I ask everyone, um, I'm going to start phrasing it different because it seems uh, what's your favorite or top favorite sure. makes people unnecess- like, unnecessarily uncomfortable. So, what Maryland non-sapwood cellar beer are you drinking right now? So I'm. I'm a real jerk. I, we, we just can't get out of the brewery. We, Scott and I, at some point, we're like, you know, we just need to have like a monthly, like, let's make up an excuse to take Spencer, our, our awesome bar manager and, and terrific home brewer, out for a beer once a month so we can <laughs> go somewhere else. Um, another Maryland brewery. It's, it's honestly whatever people drop off in our fridge. Um, the, the guys from Elder Pine dropped off like eight different canned beers, and their table saison was out of control good. It just, for a beer that, I forget what it was, three point something percent alcohol, had mouthfeel, body, character. It didn't taste thinned out. Um, I'm a big advocate of beers that drink bigger than they are. I've never felt that making a 16% Imperial Stout that drinks like a 12% Imperial Stout is like is, is a good goal. I would rather have two 8% Stouts that drink like a 12% seven. I can't have two of them. And still be coherent rather than this a gigantic beer that just is abrasive. Uh, or even if it's pillowy soft and, and hides that alcohol. And why, I want to drink more of it then. Um, I, I've always been a big advocate of smaller beers, sessionable beers. And it's great to see places um, that do that, particularly when the market wants high alcohol. Um, I mean, I, again, I think that first batch of Rings of Light at 4.8% was probably the best hoppy beer we've done. But it didn't get nearly the excitement that these double IPAs that yeah. are juicy and soft and delicious and somebody can drink two of them real easy get. Uh, so where uh, can people find Sapwood and where can people get your book? Sure. Um, the, the, the book is available if there are any physical retailers anymore. <laughs> um, Amazon's probably the easiest place. Um, but the homebrew stores and some bookstores will have it. And in your tap room. I noticed you have some in there. And in the tap room. And if I'm there, I'm happy to sign it. Uh, my, my writing is almost illeg- illegible and my spelling is terrible, much to my mother's chagrin. <laughs> I was told my mom, we've got spell check. Why, why, we've got computers. These things are irrelevant yeah. in the modern age. Uh, and that's my life now is writing things. Um, yeah, you can certainly buy it in the tasting room. Um, the beers are almost exclusively in the tasting room. We send out, I think last month we distributed 0.66 barrels. Um, so really not much makes out of the tasting room. Um, we try to send a little bit of beer around once in a while. Um, we're doing an event at Brewbelly on the 15th, which may or may not be before this airs, with uh, Black Flag and Hysteria. It is not, that was yesterday. No, 15th so wasn't yesterday. It tastes like the 8th. Wait, it isn't. 
No, like when this is released. Oh, like if you're oh, listening okay. to it now, it was yesterday. <laughs> okay, then you've already missed that, yeah. but our beer might still be at Brew Belly uh, in Gaithersburg or wherever they are. Yeah. Um, Olney? Said Olney. It officially in Olney, I Olney. think. Um, where is the brewery? Oh, the brewery that? is on uh, Route 108 in Columbia, Maryland. We're sort of between 95 and 29, uh, pretty conveniently located to Baltimore, D.C., or Frederick, I'm sure. In uh, every episode, oh, we dear. close out with a whiskey that I made with McClintock Distillery. This is I, a... I apologize when I cough at this. They were making fun of me. We, we got a rum barrel that just had a little at the bottom. We poured it out, and I coughed for about three minutes. <laughs> so this is a single malt whiskey with uh, chocolate malt, and it has UK Golding and Meridian hops and vapor-infused within the column. It smells good. Um, so thank you for your time today. Thank Thanks you for, for the me. delicious beer. Uh, thank you, everyone, for watching and listening. Cheers. The Uncapped Podcast is produced by Graham Cullen and me, Chris Sands. Be sure to like us on Facebook, and if you've enjoyed these podcasts, please leave us a review on Google Play or the iTunes Store. A special thanks to Double Motorcycle for providing our theme music. Thanks for listening. Oh my God, that's good.